Six Sad World. I'm Mari. And I'm Jasmine. So this episode we are talking about cult classics, as in stories about cults. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to start off with a bit of a definition. Cults are defined as a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. A relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister, or a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. Yeah, exactly. So today, uh, we have two different cults we're talking about, and kind of the funny thing, well not really funny, haha, but ironic funny, is that um, both leaders of our cults are on complete opposite ends of the political spectrum. Civil rights, human rights, etc. Um, I'm not gonna spoil who they are, but well, you're you're gonna find out anyway. Yes, exactly. But, um, <laughs> as we're going through these stories, you're gonna notice that um, there are two completely different types of cults with yeah. completely different out, um, intended outcomes and completely different sets of values, but they're both very dangerous. Yes. Um, and both led to tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, Alright. So, so, I guess I'll get into mine. I'm excited. So, I'm going to be talking about Charles Manson. Um, so, content warning about this. Um, this is the Manson murders. So, um, this will be talking about murders, which will include stabbings and shootings. Um, also sexual manipulation and other forms of manipulation. Um, just as a warning going into the story, I don't get into too much gruesome details, um, but I am going to be talking about a lot. Oh, I forgot to mention that bit in the intro. We're doing something a little bit different. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, instead of doing a bunch of short stories, yeah. we decided we were going to dive in and do one detailed story each. Yeah. So, um, this episode is probably going to be a little bit longer our typical episodes. Yeah, we thought it would be, like, regular ones because, like, it's one story each and, like, normally our research doesn't come out that much. But then we both ended up with, like, ten pages of notes. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> enjoy me talking for the next, like, 40 minutes straight. Sit tight. You guys are gonna, like, this one. These are some very, very interesting cases that people should know about. Yes. So, um... Yeah, I chose Charles Manson because I originally wanted to do the one Jasmine's doing, um, but I let her take it because I had backup, <laughs> and it was the responsible adult I could do. <laughs> I was pretty set on the line, even with her backup, I'm like, this is the one I wanted to So, um, but I wanted to do something very different from Jasmine. Um, so, I chose Charles Manson. Um, so, Charles Manson was born in November of 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio. His, his birth name was actually, like, he didn't have a first name for a yeah. while, and his mother's uh, name at the time was Maddox. Um, she was a single mother, and she was only 16 when she had him. So, um, Charles Manson probably didn't even know who his biological father is. There's no record of it anywhere. Um, he did take on the last name Manson after um, his mother remarried at some point and took on his stepfather's last name. Uh, When he was five, however, his mother was arrested for armed robbery. Um, 
And so she was sentenced to five years in prison, and at that point, he was sent to live with family. Um, a lot of biographies mention that Manson bounced around between boys' schools and foster homes. Yeah, I love that. Um, however, he was also taken in by family, including an aunt and uncle when his mother first went to prison. Um, and then he, um, and he was also sent to live with his grandmother, um, but she was very religious, and yeah. he didn't like that. So he ran away from home and um, just kind of, like, disappeared. Um, so he ended up spending most of his time, most of his childhood living on the streets and performing petty crimes to survive. Um, he was also known to manipulate classmates into hurting other kids that he didn't like as early as first grade. Which shows how, like, great his skill at manipulation was. He's already having an impact, impact, impact on people in the first grade. And what was really interesting was I was watching one kind of uh, video about Manson's childhood, and this one white dude was like, there was no way to know he would, you know, end up, you know, like, perpetrating such, like, horrible crimes. Yeah. But then it's like, you go and you look into his childhood, and he was manipulating kids into hurting other kids. Yeah. And it's like, all the signs were there. They were. And, like... They were very clear. They, they like, keep going. He was sent to prison the first time in 1951 when he was about 16 or 17, um, and he served time on multiple occasions following that for forging texts, burglaries, stealing cars, um, and getting out text workers, um, among other crimes. Um, during one of his prison stints, he was accused of raping another inmate. Um, although this was kind of confusing, it mentioned that uh, there was... And, act, and allegations of sexual assault, homosexual sexual assault, okay. the description that the, the same guy who said they didn't see any warning signs. Yeah. Um, but in another article, it said it was actually allegations at one of the reformatories he was at before he went to prison. And yeah. so it was other younger um, juvenile delinquents. So I know a bit about the Manson case, and I didn't hear about it happening while he was in incarcerated. Um, I heard about what he was, uh, in, um, what's it called again? Um, like, reform. Reform, reform school. Yeah, so, um, the, so I think, I don't think it was an actual inmate, I think it was one of the reformatories, so I think it was actually a younger, um, or it, it have, it's mentioned that it was multiple victims. Yeah. Um, and that they were probably younger boys, um who were also at the reformatory with Manson. Um, he was also known to be physically abusive to his wife. He actually married twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and both times I think he ended up getting divorced while he was in prison. Um, and he had two sons um, to those wives. Um, and I think he also had an illegitimate child, but I'll get into that later. Okay. Um, by the time he was 32, he had already spent 17 years in prison. Um, 10 of those years were in Washington State for um, a burglary charge. Um, where he came to feel he was at home. Like, he felt like prison was more home for half down on the streets. When he was getting released from Washington State, he didn't want to go. Well, that makes sense when you spend so much of your life in prison. And if you spend like, most of your life living on the streets and, like, you 
you need some place that has like food. Yeah, you don't have to to work for like to get food and shelter. You can just kind of go about your life. You know, prison is going to be very enticing, and there is a lot of like uh, repeat offenders, I guess you could say, who prefer once they get out of prison, they can't either adjust or find work or whatever. They prefer the comfort of prison because it's all been known. There's the routine. There's the food. There's the people. There's just it has more of an appeal than what they would have outside of prison. I think that whole, like, finding work thing is a major issue as well because, like, um, a lot of people with criminal records can't find work, even if it wasn't a violent offense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, small-time offenses can end up keeping people out of work um, and being stuck in, like, minimum wage jobs where they can't advance or, you know, kind of build a life for themselves. Yeah. So... It's no surprise that Vance felt at home in prison. Yeah. Um, but he was released in 1967, which is um, when he headed to California. Um, he had learned to play guitar in prison, so he decided he wanted to pursue a career in music. Yeah. And also one of his um, cellmates or, like, people he had met in prison had connections to the music industry. Yeah. So... He already knew of some people, so he was like, I'm just going to follow up on these names. I'm going to get my, you know, ex-con friends to, like, set me up. Yeah. And then, um, well, you know, like, I'll be a rock star. Yeah. Um, Manson um, had what is described as a psychedelic folk music that was heavily inspired by the Beatles. Um, a lot of the articles that did mention his music was like in the Rolling Stones and stuff, and they were not kind. Um, they were like, um, they talked about how it was a blatant kind of um, rip off of the Beatles because yeah. they used a lot of used a lot of the same guitar sounds that they used, um, and like a lot of people ripped on him. He didn't really write music so much as he would just start playing his guitar and singing yeah. whatever would come to him, and um. So, like, there wasn't a real, like, song writing. It was just, like, improv music playing. He's definitely very much an amateur artist hoping for immediate sort of fame and stardom. So he did end up showing off his music to many big names in the industry, like Neil Young, Dennis Wilson from The Beach Boys, who actually featured the role in this, and music producer Terry Melcher. And he was the son of Doris Day, who was another famous person um, from Hollywood. Um, Neil Young actually said that he liked his music um, because it was unique and different. He thought he had something special there, um, but a lot of other people didn't agree, like um, someone from the Mamas and Papas, which is band from the 60s, I do not know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's not like the Beach Boys or the Beatles, but I was like, I know that one. Yeah. Um, but, um, um, one of the musicians from the Mamas and Papas would always try to avoid recording with Manson because he didn't like being around him. Yeah. Which is also very strange because apparently um, when one of the murders takes place, this guy actually was under suspicion for first before Manson because of his kind of misogynistic and like violent so this guy who is misogynistic and violent and 
you know, had this very dark, angry temper. He saw something in Manson that he did not right. want something to be around. And that could just be, like, two macho men being like, I see myself in this yeah. so I'm backing out because I don't want to compete and I don't, you know, like, it's, a, it's that. also a possibility. Um, he was introduced to Dennis Wilson in 1968 um, of the Beach Boys, and Wilson thought he was talented, um, despite another member of the band being like, he's not talented. Yeah, like, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this guy fell in love with Manson. He allowed him to live in his mansion for free. Um, however, um, after um, he moved out, Manson accused Dennis Wilson of stealing one of his songs. And it does seem to be um, from from what it seems like Dennis yeah. Wilson did um, make a song man, uh, I keep saying Marilyn Manson. Charles <laughs> Manson wrote um, change the title, change the background music so it's all of his lyrics but the, the background music um, is all different. And he took the entire writing credit so Manson didn't get any credit. Okay, so now I'm going to go into the family. So the family, Charles Manson is often described as a serial killer, but in fact he didn't participate in any of the murders. Yeah. Um, he orchestrated them through his cult, which he called the family, which is also referred to as the Manson family. Yeah. Um, so after Manson left prison in 1967, he began attracting followers, um, mostly young middle-class white women, um, who were rebelling against their family. Um, they followed him from San Francisco to LA. Like this is how much they they followed him. Like they they picked up and moved whenever he wanted. Yeah. Um. And oh, they were yeah mostly young women, and they were always distracted, beautiful. Um. They were you know he only wanted like young but like damaged and vulnerable, beautiful young women that he. Yeah. Um, so Manson and his followers lived together communally in abandoned buildings, and Manson had portrayed himself as a Jesus or a Messiah-like figure, and so they would follow him, like, oh, he's gonna save yeah. us, all of this stuff. Which is a big, like, um, what's what I'm looking for? Like, amongst a lot of cult leaders, yeah. they all share that sort of, like, I am the leader, I am your god, or your... I'm the second coming of Christ, yes. I'm going to save you from evil, I'm going to pick you up from your mortal toil, yeah. and, and whatever. And um, he definitely played up on this. What was really interesting is that um, when you're reading about Manson, he's always described as almost like three different people. Mm. And there's like this Messiah Jesus-like figure, but then there's the rock star type of guy. But there's also those just like blatant racist um, misogynist who like hangs out with bikers and things. Yeah. So he he had very distinct personalities that he portrayed to certain people, and that's part of the manipulation. Yeah. Is that so? To be honest, I don't think like doing all this research, I don't think he believed in any of the stuff he was spouting. But I think he knew it would get him what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Manson also took advantage of the free love culture of the 60s. Um, there's a really good, um, article, I think it was the Vox article on, of Manson. Yeah. Um, that I read that did a really good job of covering this, and I can only do it 
really quickly. Um, but he took advantage of the of the free love culture of the sixties, which um, kind of portrayed itself as a sexual liberation movement, but really just kind of um, reinforced gender roles and um, gender imbalance, where like men were seen as the as people who did the sexual thing, and women were just the objects they were done yeah. to. So um, it wasn't just with Manson, but a lot of places. Um, you know, part of this free love culture, women were like passed around. They were um, often kind of uh, forced into having sex. They were made to feel like they weren't liberated or free or whatever they yeah. didn't because, you know, they were obviously just repressed prudes or whatever. Um, so um, a lot of women were under this kind of pressure, especially young women, were under this pressure to be sexually available. Um, and to, you know, kind yeah. of use sexuality as a barter to Um, and Nancy definitely took advantage of that a lot. And he just preached that free love as opposed to abuse. Yeah. His first kind of follower, um, kind of the first woman to be majorly manipulated by Manson, I mean, other than like his wives and stuff. Um, so there was a 23 year old woman named, uh, Mary Brunner who supported him and allowed him to live in her house for free. Well, he was living his free love lifestyle, um, and he was going yes. around and gaining followers. So he was he was living in her home, but he was going out and finding more women and bringing them back. Yeah, and and you know he always he had a group of women. It was never just one. Um, and like his follow, he had a, a few male followers who did a lot of stuff for him, but his group was mostly young women. Yeah. Um. They're probably easier for him. For sure. Uh, Manson had already quite a following when he had moved in with Wilson. In fact, several of his followers had lived with them, and the group would kind of come and go. Um, Manson would trade his female followers sexually in exchange um, of receiving thousands of dollars from Wilson to produce his record. So he would basically just like, yeah, like, let me live here for free, let yeah. me eat your food, let me use your cars, and, and um, you know, your, and let me just borrow, just take, 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 huge sums of money, but you can stick with any one of my followers whenever you want, um, and honestly, I think I really messed up, right? It's really fucking messed up, <clears throat> and Manson doesn't, he's not the one doing any of the work, Yeah, by the way, he, you know, it's his followers who are being that for him to get whatever he wanted. And this is a major thing. He's laying the sacrifice for him. He's just like, no, yeah, take my woman. I don't whatever. I have like 500 of them. It's whatever. Um, like his group was as big as up to like 100 people. Yeah. Um, before kind of the major child. Um, Wilson then introduced Manson to Terry Melcher, the music producer I mentioned earlier. When Melcher didn't find Manson, uh, and Wilson then took credit for the song uh, Never Learn Not to Love, which was the song um, that he took credit for, um, which was a reworking of Manson's song Cease to Exist. <laughs> if you're curious and want to know what kind of song Manson wrote, I heard it. Um, Manson got furious and he eventually threatened to kill Wilson, which ended up with him getting evicted in 1968. Um, because his, like, Wilson's manager was like, hey, this dude is, like, violent, racist, yeah. and, like, 
isn't that a time when racism was like really accepted? Yeah, so when someone's saying like, like this dude is too racist even for me, like you know, like there's obviously problems going on. Yeah. Um, and so the manager was just like, I don't care how much talent you see in this dude, cut him loose. Like, yeah, he's gotta go. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we ended up at Spawn Movie Ranch, which was an empty ranch that was often used for filming westerns. Here, he once again traded sexual favors from his female followers in exchange for living on the ranch for free. Honestly, it just felt like that's like this is for former currency. Like, as far as I know, he wasn't terribly wealthy, but he had plenty of women. So that was that was his currency. That was his money. Basically, like, um, from what I've read, basically he would just get the women to do basically everything for him, and he would just uh, kind of come and go and try to play his music for producers and stuff like that. But then he would act like an asshole and they'd be like, you know, what? we don't really want to yeah. cut a record with you, actually. And then he would be like, ah, these Hollywood elites, and it's like, oh no, it's you, buddy. It's it's really you. As a cult leader, Manson preached about culture skeleton. So this is kind of the main idea that is associated with uh, Charles Manson. And Hulter Skelter was this race war that he prophesied amid the racial tensions because of the Black Panther movement. So during the 60s, um, the Black Panther movement, uh, was, like, it was like this basically group of black activists yeah. who were just trying to fight for their rights. Um, as black people to, you know, be treated as human beings, um, you know, not be killed by police, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know. The things we're still fighting for today. <laughs> um, he took the name from the Beatles song of the theme. I um, say, I'm like, is it called Silver or Beatles song? It was. And it was released kind of like that. He, I think it was released in 1968. Yeah. Um, and which is when I started teaching about it. Now, like, the song is supposed to be about, like, like, Paul McCartney says it's about the fall of the Roman Empire, but everybody knows it's about drugs. But Manson sees something completely, completely different. So he says that there's coded messages about the apocalypse, about this race war, where it would wage on and he, would, he and his family would live underground and the white people would be all killed off by the Black Party. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't understand how this works, um, but... Then, once they had killed off all the other white people, Manson and his family would emerge from the underground. Like the mole people. And the Black Panther Party would be so desperate for leadership because they have no white people to lead them because apparently that's all they really needed. Yeah. Um, and that they would come to him and then he would rule over them, basically. And he, he saw black people as beneath him. Yeah. Um, but, like, this whole thing was very confusing. He's all like, I want them to win the war so then I can control them and be the most powerful white person of all, I guess. So, while Manson had a kind of a large following of up to, like, 100 people, he also had a core group of followers um, that would later be, like, he tried alongside him. Um, so that included Leslie Van Houten, who was only 19 when she joined and participated. Uh, Charles Tex Watson, who was considered uh, Manson's right-hand man. Patricia Krenwinkel, who was 21. Susan Atkins, who was 21. Linda Sabian, who was 20, and a single mother to a daughter. Um, Lynette Frum, who uh, Manson nicknamed Sweet Bee, and they went, when Manson nicknamed you, 
um, basically that was your name. He was like, your other identity is going into it. Yeah. This is the name you need. And I'll so he only born. really referred to them by that name. So she is referred to as Kiki a lot. Um, there's Bobby Beausoleil, who you'll hear more about. Um, Paul Watkins, Catherine Cher, Steve Rogan, who I think uh, Manson gave him the name Clum. Okay. Um, and the youngest member, she wasn't a participant, though, in any of the crimes, but the youngest member was Diane Lane, who was 14 when she first joined. Um, and she actually has recently released a book. Um, she writes kind of like this huge tell-all about living in the Manson family um, and getting involved so early. She's only like 68 right now. Kind of like midlife bananas considering how long ago these things happened. Yeah. Alright. Now, I'm going to get into the murder. That's what we've cool. all been waiting for. So, a lot of sources mention the Tate murders as the first murder Manson, Manson was connected to. However, it wasn't. There was actually two more murders that happened before the Tate. So, in May of 1969, um, Manson got into Dispute with a man named Bernard Lacapapa Crow. Oh, what a name. Yeah, Lacapapa, I guess that's his nickname or whatever. Um, it's what everybody referred to him as. Yeah. Um, and what's also important to know is that Lacapapa was supposed to be connected to the Black Panther movement in some way. Okay. Um, he, but he was a drug dealer. I don't, I don't know what his connection was yeah. or if Nancy thought he was connected. It could have been that. Um, it's, you know, there's not too much information on these murders because it's not his, like, famous one. And he, Manson shot him and left him for what he thought was dead, but he actually survived. So, um, lots of probably did survive, so it technically wasn't mm-hmm. murder. Yeah. It was attempted. But it was attempted. <clears throat> then, in July, Manson ordered his followers to steal money from his friend and music teacher. Uh, Gary Hinman. So this was someone Manson referred to as a friend. This is someone who thought he was friends with Manson. So who was supposed to be close to Manson. So his followers um, so held him for two days um, with Manson like ordered. He ordered them to take him hostage uh, take him hostage and try and steal money. When Hinman wouldn't give them money um, he was stabbed to death by Bobby Bosley. Then Bobby Beausoleil tried to pin the murder on the Black Panther by writing political piggies and the Black Black Panther symbol in blood on the wall. Um, However, in a couple weeks, they did apprehend Bobby Beausoleil. At this point, Manson feared that Beausoleil would reveal Manson's involvement um, in this and also the Black Papa. Yeah. um, And, you know, his whole cult thing. Um, so he kind of, he decided to, that, that the Black Panther Party wasn't, you know, mo- getting to Helter Skelter quickly enough, so he was like, let's help him along. <laughs> um, which is why he then decided to basically go off his killing spree with his followers. Um, so that it would distract away from his crimes and everyone was thinking of the Black Panthers. And that means it had nothing to do with it. You had some weird elaborate plans. It all backfired too. 
Because before he did all this stuff, they didn't even <laughs> they didn't even think it was him. Like they didn't think any of these times were like connected until like way later. I told you about it. Uh, I'll get to it. Um, it was at this point when his music contract with Melcher went south, and so he had gone to confront him at his home, only to find that um, Melcher wasn't living there anymore, and it was in fact being rented to Roman Polanski and his eight-month pregnant wife. Oh yeah, Sharon Tate. So Manson was like, "Okay, what will give Melcher a good scare if I?" murder everyone in that house. He was like, you know what, I'm not just against Meltzer, I'm against all of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so he he wanted to give Melcher a scare. This was his a idea scare. of giving him a scare, by the way. So he said, Tex Watson, Patricia Kent, Fred Winkle, Susan Atkins, and Linda Kasabian to the house. Um, Polanski wasn't even there. He was away in Europe, um, I think actually in London for like a movie filming. Yeah. Um, and what a shame Polanski wasn't there, to be honest. Like, <laughs> of all the people who could have, uh, you know, I'm just saying, I mean, no one deserves to die, but not my choice to make, but considering. I mean, like, I don't think that eight months pregnant woman, like, deserves. Yeah, that he was, like, repeatedly cheating on, like, while she, like, there was a description of of him somewhere where he would be uh, continually cheating on her while she was staying home to paint the nursery for their baby. Like, he was a shitty dude. And, you know, we all know what Polanski has done. So, so, I'm just saying, anyone should have been there. They should have been. But, you know, that's, that's not the point. Yeah. Um. Tate was home, however, and she was entertaining guests, and Manson kind of alludes in one of his, like, final confessions that she was sleeping with one of his men, um, but it's kind of confusing. Um, there was Jay Sebring, who was um, somebody who was a part of Hollywood's elite. Um, Abigail Folger, who was some coffee heiress, who owned, I don't know, some, like, coffee plantation, I guess. Um, Wojciech Brykowski, because uh, you've got to have a full of that name. Good thing you're good with those. I'm uh, not. <laughs> so. My partner listens to this. He's going to read on that. He's yeah. Polish, and he's been trying to teach me Polish for literally six years. <laughs> we'll get there someday. One does. Um, and uh, he was the husband of Folger, and he was also somebody wealthy and famous, and Stephen's parent. Who, I think it was Stephen Pratt, was the 18-year-old who was just visiting someone, and he didn't really have much of a connection. He was visiting someone who was living in, like, the, the guest house or something that was on the same property. So, like, he didn't even really live there. He was just kind of, like, hanging out, and he it was just wrong time, wrong place. Yeah. So, uh, Watson, Tex Watson, um, cut the telephone wires, and took rope and tied up everyone in the house. Um, that's my time. Over the course of that night, they inflicted 102 stab wounds. Um, once again, wrote pig on the door in blood to try and implicate the black man. Um, Susan Atkins 
confess at one point that she did want to actually cut the child out of Sharon Tate's stomach, but she didn't have time. And at one point, Frykowski was able to stagger out of the house, but once he had made it, so this is um, how Linda Fabian tells the story because she yeah. wasn't involved in the actual murder. She, once they had, I think it was like Stephen's parent was like in the driveway and they had shot him, and she was basically like, I'm out, I'll stand guard. Yeah. Um, and she was not down. Um, she didn't realize, like, this was what they were planning on. So she's standing out guard when this guy staggers out of the house, covered in blood, and he's like, like, help me, help me. And she, all she can say is, I'm sorry. And basically, Watson comes in behind them, bludgeons him to death. Um, Folger, his, his wife or partner, um, made it, also made it to the lawn, where she was then stabbed another 28 times. 28. And he wants to have a separate book of 28. Yeah, like, like, when you think of overkill, it's usually, like, what, five stabs. Yeah. That's, like, an excessive amount. This is 28. 28 stabbings on one person. Like, she must have just been, like, whole at that point. It just goes to show how much Manson like, how good of a reliable source of people who are willing to do bidding. Like, not do bidding, but like, do bidding. He would just be like, go do this, and they would go do it. A very loyal following, and fortunately for Manson, people who were obviously quite twisted. So, after these murders, um, they go back to Manson, and he's like, instead of being like, Cool, good job, guys. He was like, you guys are sloppy. We gotta do it again. What? Yeah. It's like, I control, like, control, undo murder? Like, and he was just like, it was sloppy. We gotta, we gotta do it again and do it better this time. So the next night, Leslie Van Houten and Steve Clem Grogan, uh, went to a house, uh, owned by Leno and Rosemary Labia, um, who were Wealthy owners of a chain of grocery stores. However, this doesn't fall into Manson's whole Hollywood elite thing. They weren't Hollywood elite. They were just like grocery store owners. Like they were rich, but they weren't like part of the, you know, like media scene or, or whatever. Like they weren't in control of Hollywood. So Manson broke in and helped tie up the couple um, before he left. So he just leaves. He's like, I'm not actually. I'll help you tie them up or whatever. But then he just kind of like bounced. And he tells them uh, to stab him to death. Which they did. They stab him to death a lot. Um, because these were brutal and vicious attacks. But they were not in any way, you know, just people following orders. They, the, these followers took the light and the harm and the violence that they were causing because they believed in Manson's cause, which was amazing thing. They thought they were doing what was right because their Jesus Messiah-like figure told them. It's scary because, like, for me, obviously, I can't imagine anyone telling me to do something like murder and me doing it quite blindly, I guess, but these people believed in their, in their heart of hearts that, like, this is what needed to be done. Yeah, and it was like, 
like, they took joy in it when it was happening. Like, um, like with the tape record, like, Susan Atkins was disappointed she could not cut an unborn child out of the chainsaw. Which once again is super disturbing. It is not okay. It is what we're getting at. Yeah. Uh, they left more writing in blood on the walls, including phrases like Helter Skelter and Death of Pigs. Once again, trying to implicate black listeners. And they're not doing a very good job of that either. Like, you obviously can't do it. Every time that Mari says that, I like roll my eyes heavily because they didn't. Their supposed goal, they weren't. It's. Yeah, that's not what Black Panther, like the Black Panther movement, wanted. Uh, they just wanted to not be killed by police. They wanted to be able to move freely throughout LA and California, you know, where there was a lot of violence, a yeah. lot of brutality, a lot of racism. Um, you know, they they just wanted to exist as people. They didn't want a race war. They didn't want violence. They they just wanted to exist out of violence. The last murder um, that was attributed to Manson was the murder of Donald Shorty Shank. Um, so a lot of um, biographies and a lot of articles on Manson um, skip this stuff as well, probably because he was just a ranch man okay. um, and not one of the wealthy elites. So all of the rich people Manson, um, you know, was tied to their murders that got the big media circus. Like, it, you can find so much information on the Tate murders, so much information on the LaBianca murders. They're notable people. But, you know, Gary Hinman, who was just, like, a regular dude, he just, like, pop music. Um, and, like, uh, this guy was just a ranch hand who, who worked on the ranch that Manson was living on. Um, so... The reason Manson um, ordered his murder, because once again, he didn't do the actual killing, he just ordered it. Um, which I also think is true for Lost Papa. He didn't, he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, he ordered someone to pull the trigger for him. That seems to be his MO. Yeah. Um, basically he, he was always trying to protect himself legally. Um, so, the police had raided Spawn Ranch at one point on suspicion of car theft, not even for the murder, um, but just for car theft. And Manson blamed Shay for telling the cops about cars. Um, and that was kind of like the last murder that was attributed to him that had confirmed. Although there are um, rumors that up to 35 deaths um, were ordered by Manson and were linked to the family. Yeah. Um, but they're not confirmed, but it you know, it wouldn't be surprising. Like, he did this with relative ease. He knew he could order people to mm-hmm. kill for him, and anyone who crossed him seemed to disappear. If you have an army of, like, 100 people, mm-hmm. roughly 100 people, who, if not all, most of them are willing to do just what anything you say, if you know what the kind of deeds could be carried out without anyone finding out that it was connected to so, in October of 1969, uh, Manson and members of the family were finally arrested, but not for the murders, for stealing RV equipment. But while they were in police custody, the police were able to link Manson to the murders and thus 
charge him for those as well. Now, the trial is the kind of the reason why Manson became this kind of cultural icon. Um, so on top of having, you know, this music background yeah. and having these followers, Manson also acted very erratically during his trial, which gave him a lot of popularity. Um, during uh, the trial, he didn't appear remorseful at all. At one point, he had carved an X onto his head, onto his face, his forehead, uh, during the trial um, to signify his rights because he wasn't allowed to represent himself in court, which isn't actually like a right. You're supposed to have a legal representative, yeah, that's how it uh, works. someone informed and trained in the law. Um, and in, like, the court process. Yeah. Um, to represent him, but that's not the point, I yeah. guess. Um, he later would, um, modify it to look like a swastika. Um, his female followers, um, the ones who ended up on trial with him, Atkins, Trenwinkle, and Van Houten, um, also carved X's onto their foreheads during the trial. And these are not just, like, scratches. These are, like, they scarf. Like, Manson, till the day he died, has that swastika yeah. on his face. Um, they are legitimate scars. Um, they're not, like, easily done. Um, they dress identically throughout uh, the the trial. Like, there's a picture here of them. Yeah, I see it. Um, they're all, they all have long brown hair. Yeah. Wearing um, dark blue cardigans yeah. over light blue dresses, they are standing side by side. They they look very similar. Yeah. Um, it is kind of creepy. Um, and they'd often be giggling in the courtroom, so they didn't show any remorse at all. Um, during the trial as well. Um, to boost his like defense or to like his public image for his defense. Manson released uh, an album <laughs> while while he was on trial. Um, didn't work. He was convicted for nine first degree murders, um, and he kind of sealed the deal for himself when um, at one point he lunged at the judge yeah. and was like, "I'm gonna kill you!" And the judge was like, "The jury was basically like, yeah, I'm like, pretty sure he did it." <laughs> Pretty sure he's involved. Um, that's one reason that, like, obviously he shouldn't have represented himself, because if it was all on him, I mean, for his, his side, he would have been a lot sooner. Oh, yeah. Rich. Um, so, and now, I'm now going to let you all know where everybody is these days. I got oh, most wow. of the followers. Okay. Um, the, of the main ones, the ones that were on trial. Um, Manson spent the rest of his life in jail, where he still maintained a following. It said that he got up to four letters a day from followers, from young women who believed in him. Um, a lot of them believed they, you know, they were like, you're innocent, you're, you know, this is just pigs, and they're just, you know, whatever. Um, he actually almost got married a third time to a 25-year-old woman named Elaine Burke he called stars. So he continued on this tradition of naming women and, and kind of erasing their identity. Nothing really No, well, he was comfortable in prison as it was. That's true. He, it was his, it was his second home. Um, he 
did they did get a marriage license, um, but they didn't get married before it expired. Oh. So they didn't actually get married, but um, he was saying um, there was rumors that it was Star's idea because um, she was trying to rehabilitate his public image. Mm-hmm. Even while he was in jail, and even after his death in November 2017, um, she's been visiting him since 2007. So she was only, I think, 19 yeah. when she ran away from home and um, moved to go be near Hampton. And she visits him. She visited him regularly until his death. And she still has like websites where she's trying to. Um, Revitalize that image of him and kind of, kind of make him seem like a good guy. You know, yeah. now um, she was drawn to him because of his um, environmental leanings. He had this whole air, trees, water, earth, um, or whatever it was called, uh, like organization or whatever. It wasn't like an organization, but it was just like this like site where he would be like, air is. God, because we need air to exist, and like, um, we need to be protecting the environment and stuff like that, which is like kind of weird. I don't know. I call BS on that for everything because there are some people who aren't in jail and who aren't, who didn't, what were the like direct cause of like Sunny Murder, who are very like avid about being vocal about the environment and stuff. So, like, yeah, I mean, being environmental doesn't mean you're a good person. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who would rather, you know, marginalized people continue to be oppressed if it means, like, better recycling. Yeah. Like, there's definitely environmental leaning has zero things to do with morality, the goodness of your heart, or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Like, and according to people, um, this is kind of where everybody else ended up. So Leslie Manhattan, uh, who was one of the Manson um, followers who was on trial with him, she ended up being sentenced to life in prison for the law of Bianca murders. Um, and she was up for parole recently, but was not. I'm not surprised. It was, yeah, she went up for parole uh, towards the end of 2017. They recently kind of came through on a decision. They were like, nope, you're, you're staying. You're seen in jail. Tex Watson uh, was also sentenced to life in prison, but that didn't stop him from getting married, divorced, having four children, earning a degree in business management, and getting ordained as a minister. What the fuck? His parole in 2016 was also denied. So I don't know why he got that business management degree. Like, I don't. What are you going to do in jail? How are you going to manage? Okay. Was definitely aiming to like get his life straight out of jail, but they were just like, it's not happening. Um, Krenwinkel, Patricia Krenwinkel, is also serving life in prison and is currently the longest serving female prisoner uh, in California. Damn. So in 2004, uh, in a parole hearing, she said she placed herself at the top of the list of people she had to Um, I would like to mention. She did also murder people. So as much as it's like, yeah, I hurt myself by allowing myself to be manipulated, you still murder people, and I think those people still a little higher up on the list. Yeah, they didn't have a choice 
at all. No, and they were viciously, brutally killed. Yeah. Um, and she's up for parole this year. I feel like they will get denied as well. Susan Atkins was serving life in prison when she was diagnosed with brain cancer and she died in 2009. Okay. So that's kind of sad. Um, you know, like, she basically spent her entire life in jail because yeah. she got cancer in that. She didn't even get a chance to, um, she did try and get parole or kind of like that six leave parole well, they're where like, you're gonna... you can, like, die in a hospital outside of prison. But okay. they were like, no, not, no can do, you're gonna die in a hospital, a prison hospital. Uh, Linda Sabian wasn't one of the followers who, um, was on trial because she reached out to prosecutors and was granted immunity because she didn't actually participate. Yeah. Um, she just kind of watched and was there and, and like, stood guard. Um, and so in exchange for her testimony, she got immunity, um, and she changed her name and moved, but in 2009, she did kind of give a tell-all interview to The Guardian, which is where I got, um, some of my information. Yeah. Um, and then there was Squeaky, uh, um, or Lynette Brom, uh, who wasn't linked to any of the murders, um, so she was never charged or convicted on any of those, but was later charged and convicted for the 1975 attempted assassination of President Gerald Ford. Ford. Wow. Uh, she was given a life sentence, but was, but was released on parole in 2010. And her current whereabouts are unknown. And I thought that was the most interesting because it was like, she, she didn't really, she just needed a pause, basically, at that point to get involved with something like that. Yeah. Like, it, it really does make it seem like it, there was a personal choice in a lot of this. However, a lot of these women were, were vulnerable, mm -hmm. um, and he preyed on their, like, social hangups and mm -hmm. on this kind of, uh, inferiority complex that they would have. Um, and he would make them believe that his way was always better, um, smarter, more liberating, more whatever. And so, um, at one point, they just followed him, um, you know, without even thinking. He was definitely grooming them. I don't know if y'all are, like, familiar with what grooming is, but, like, essentially, you can take advantage of usually younger women, and you sort of, like, Shape them into the, the woman that you want to be because when you're younger, you're usually more vulnerable, you're usually more susceptible to. Especially with uh, older men because yes. Manson, like, while these women were in their 20s, Manson was in his 30s yes. when this was happening. So he's an older man. He seems more worldly. He's, you know, he's still rubbing elbows with a lot of big names in Hollywood. Like, yeah. he's, and like. Influential, kind of. Like, Neil Young said his music was good. Like, yeah. you know, people were really taking notice of him. And so when you're a young woman, you're just coming out of adulthood. Um, a lot of them are coming from very restrictive, conservative households. So they were rebelling and they went as far as possible to yeah. quit from that. Um, but, like, a lot of the kind of ideas of, like, progressiveness or whatever weren't actually what Manson was he was just taking advantage of that culture yeah. to manipulate people and get them to do his bidding. He was masking a lot of his shitty behavior and things that people 
young people were really into like rock and roll music and the hippie culture and whatnot. And drugs. He did oh, yeah. a lot of acid. Uh, he gave people a lot of acid. There was a story of one time, um, it was like one of the um, musicians in the Beach Boys who was like friends with Wilson. Yeah. He had like come over and um, Manson was like, hey, like, come over into this room where he just had a bunch of his followers, like his female followers, naked on the floor um, in like this room with like strobe lights. Yeah. And then he was like giving everyone acid and then he was like pairing people up. Like, yeah. He was like, you can take this woman and you can take this woman. And this dude was like, like, I love women and women and that guy, but like, this, this is not That's for me. Yeah. Like, I don't want someone to be forced into, like, being, you know, like, I'm not just going to drop out and be part of a fake orgy. Yeah. Um, so he tried to dip out of the situation by going to take a shower. Um, and Manson, like, sent in his pregnancy in yeah. to the shower with him. And was trying to make moves, and he was like, nah, nah, like, let's not. And then Manson comes in, and he's like, you don't get to leave the party. Um, and so then, uh, that guy and another dude at the party were like, you know, we've got some things to do at the studio, so we just, um, it's not that we want to, we just thought it, we don't have it's a not choice. I love to be here. Uh, this is like a cool thing you got going on, but I'm not just gonna, oh darn, I, I wish I could have stayed, but, um, and so they bounced. And they're like, no, like, no, no thanks. But like, even when people were like, I don't want to. Yeah. He was like, you're gonna go at it. Yeah, it's, it's about the control. It's, cult leaders often have that in common. It's about the control, it's their egos, all of that sort of stuff. Yes, that works. That unpause. Woo! We're back on the air. People say it right? Yeah. I don't <laughs> think they do with podcasts, but. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, now it's yeah. time. So, I if you aren't already exhausted. <laughs> From all of that information about Charles Manson. <laughs> well, here's mine. Um, it is probably equally exhausting, but just as interesting. And also, a little more personal for both Mari and I. Um, I'm going to preface um, my information about the cult that I'm doing with a little bit of a... Not so much a backstory, but how I learned about this cult. I heard about this cult through a podcast. I used to listen to my podcast because it's shit. And, um, <laughs> yeah, that there are other better podcasts yes. out there that you can listen to. There's also one on Manson. Um, so or they did a season on Manson. Yeah. Um, There's so much and information. It was something like uh, I'll remember you, or it's uh, something like that. And also, I encourage you guys because we can only do so much. But I encourage you guys to look up these cases yourself because. There's just so much that Mari and I weren't able to get to, um, because this podcast is already very long. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, I heard about the, the Jonestown, the root pocket names to listen to, and what the host had failed to mention was how many of the members of this cult were people of color, specifically African-American, and also Guyanese people. I am, in case y'all didn't know, a black person, and Mari is Guyanese and Trini, so we were both kind of connected in that way. That's why I'm glad that we were able to talk about this. And actually, my father grew up and was born um, in Georgetown, or just outside of Georgetown. So yeah. This is basically right where it was happening. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to insert a warning here. There's going to be 
a little bit, talk about drug addictions, and animal abuse, and abuse in general, uh, suicide, mass murder, manipulation, um, maybe a little bit of sexual assault. Uh, I'm pretty, basically every, there's a little bit of everything in here. Um, so I'm going to start off with the infamous um, Jim Jones, who obviously Jonestown, Jim Jones. Um, so Jones was a white man born in Crete, Indiana on May 13th, 1931 to James Thurman Jones and Bernetta Putnam. Um, he was of Irish and Welsh descent, but later on in adulthood, he claimed to be like part Cherokee. Um, and Anthony said that was a lie. And as you guys will soon learn is that Jones had a thing with like lying as, you know, also, do you know how many white folks pull the whole, like, <laughs> I'm 114 Cherokee? Like, as soon as you hear the, like, word Cherokee, you, you instantly know they're lying. Because <laughs> that's the one they go to. Like, there are other nations. Yeah, there's a You know, like, there are other indigenous nations other than the Cherokees. Like, and I think because this can head the obsession with um, other races, uh, and you guys will see why. Um, so... But we'll get to that later. Uh, he grew up pretty poor. Obviously, this was during the Great Depression. He lived in a shack with no plumbing with his parents. Um, from a very young age, he had an interest, a very strong interest in religion. His neighbor used to church because that's what interested he was in. He was also really obsessed with um, Stalin, Karl Marx, Gandhi, and Hitler when he, <laughs> when he was young. I mean... <laughs> I can get it in some ways, because you got the communists yes. in there. You got Gandhi, who was also an incredible racist, by yeah. the way. Very anti-black. Um, let's not give Gandhi too much credit here. Yeah. Um, but, like, I mean, you grew up during World War Two, my man. Yes. Um, maybe don't idolize Hitler. <laughs> um, he also uh, apparently held funerals for animals. And may have been responsible for some of their deaths that haven't been confirmed, but he was definitely obsessed with holding funerals and death. Well, um, he did multiple. I can't imagine he just found I mean, that <laughs> many yeah, the dead animals flying about. I'm sure he had responsibilities to at least one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He had problems making friends. People found him quite awkward, especially with his uh, strange obsessions. Um, he claimed his father was a member of the AKK, um, and here's a quote from a supposed like friend of Jones when he was younger. I thought Jimmy was really was a really weird kid, and this is um, Chuck Wilmore. He said this in the 2006 documentary called Joe's Jonestown: The Life and Death of People's Temple. So from a very young young age, people were like something is off. Uh, as he was growing older, his uh, parents split up, and his mom and him moved to Richmond, Indiana. He worked in a hospital as an or- orderly uh, when he met his future wife, uh, older nursing student, Marcy Baldwin. He then graduated high school early, so I'm assuming he was quite smart. Um, and then he married Marceline in June 12, 1949, after his first term of university. So he married quite young. Uh, but despite starting uni early, took him 10 years to graduate, because, you know. Me and you both, my man. <laughs> real busy I'm with life. I'm still working on mine. Real now. busy with life. He graduated from 1961. Um, 
So the two adopted many, many children. Uh, he called them his rainbow family, which he later used to describe his followers. Okay. Wait, were they all like... Let me... I will tell you. I broke this down. Okay. So three Korean-American children, Lou, Suzanne, and Stephanie, so three daughters. Um, during the Korean War, he was like, no to the Korean dictator. He's like, you can't do this to your people. Um, one part Native American uh, daughter, they got when she was 11 years old, Agnes. They were the first white people in Indianapolis to adopt a black child. Um, his, he, named, he was named after James, so James. Um, so sorry, kiddo. <laughs> and they adopted one white kid who was a child of one of their followers. And then they had one biological child who they named Stephen Gandhi Jones. John? Gandhi, really? Yeah. I just went back when we thought Gandhi was like super nice yes. and anti black. Yes. Was like, okay, okay. So, so like, really? You're going to be like, like it's Gandhi? Oh, well, well, it's only just the tip of the iceberg we're getting into. So this happened between 1950 and 1961. They were adopting children. Uh, so Jones pursued his interest in religion and politics, attending um, the USA Communist Party gatherings, but he didn't really feel in place there. Um, so he couldn't really demonstrate his Marxism there, and so he decided he wanted to infiltrate the church because Christianity seems easier. Well, and you know, kind of seems right because like this is like Cold War, yeah. Um, you know, very anti-communism, you yeah. know. Red leadership kind of countries, communist tendencies for like uh, criminal offenses. Yeah, you could be killed by spies. Like it was a big whole thing. Yeah, so he's like, screw communist party, they're poop. Let's let's go to the church. Uh, so he started off by entering the ministry in 1952 as a student pastor at a predominantly poor and uh, white Methodist church. Um, by the following year, he was known as a healer and evangelist. Um, and he wanted to integrate the church, but the white people at the church were like, no, we're not cool with that. When so, you say that, you mean like, he segregated, right? Yes. He wanted to allow black uh, people to attend the church, but the white members were not about that. They didn't want that. Um, so in 1965, he made his own church, and he left, and it was called Deliverance, later known as the People's Temple. So now the People's Temple, the people the more common thing that people know about Jones now. Uh, so Jones had a pretty good reputation uh, and popularity for faith healing. He also saw profit in, um, in social gain and having his own church. He used to pay for AM radio time to help his sermons reach more people. This was from a former communist. Yes. Okay. But that communism <laughs> thing really ran deep, apparently. <laughs> it was a very short stint in his life. <laughs> he was like, well, for all, or for me. Yes. <laughs> um, so the funny thing about Jones and why he's a different from, uh, I almost called him Marilyn Manson. <laughs> Charles Manson was that he was very adamant about integration and quote-unquote civil rights. Um, he was appointed by the mayor, by Mayor Charles Boswell as the director of Human Rights Commission. Um, he was asked to keep a low profile and not to make the color blue and speak out too much. Obviously, he didn't listen because 
can't be a big political figure if you don't speak out. Um, she was once quoted saying, let my people go, like Moses, oh, at a NAACP <laughs> and Urban League meeting. He got a lot of booze, but he also got a lot of no cheers. <laughs> that one split crowd when he said that. Um, Your people, okay. Yes, yes, it, his people uh, was responsible for helping to integrate, when I say integrate, I mean uh, allow African-American people. Um, into churches, restaurants, telephone companies, the, 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 the police department, a theater, and an amusement park, and a Methodist church. So this is where I am like, he could have done good things. He was doing, his intentions weren't really right, but he was doing good things for the community. <sighs> but it goes so wrong. Um, is that where I like thought saying good? Is like, and then he he did all this integration stuff, and then immediately went down. He did uh, no, no, but more. Um, he was a source of comfort for a lot of black families who were, you know, moving into these white neighborhoods, and he also counseled white families who were afraid of all the change. Who were like, oh no, black people are in our neighborhood. He was like, chill. It's cool. Honestly, we do need more white folks to do that. Yes, because like. Um, they only listen to other white folks. So yeah, I mean, it's so true. We need more people. I don't want to call them mediators, but people. But like, listen, you got racist family, racist neighbors, yes. racist, you know, classmates, colleagues, whatever. whatever. Yeah. You're a white person. It, you know, you you should really be be saying something, yeah, doing something out. and being like, hey, you know what? These people aren't horrible you know, human beings that are stealing from you. Yeah. They're actually just trying to live their lives. Yes. Um, so he did a lot of that in his community. Um, while the church was growing, a swastika was placed on the temple, a stick of dynamite was left there, and then cat was thrown at the building. They got a lot of threatening phone calls because they were an integrated church and jumped very vocal about civil rights. Um, a lot of other things happened. However, some people say that at least one of those incidents that happened to his church might have been Jones himself trying yeah, to... That's what I was thinking. When I yeah. heard Dead Cat, I was like, Jones! <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to mention that one of the funerals they told of the child was a dead cat, and that's um, one of the animals people that might feed by the kill for his obsessive animal funerals. So, you know, he was definitely... And also dynamite. Because I don't imagine just, like, regular folks... I don't see, like, like, if the Klansmen or whoever had a problem with this. I don't see them throwing dynamite. Swatika, yeah. Throwing phone calls, yeah. Maybe trying to burn the place or whatever. But, like, throwing that cat, it seems like that might have been Jones's hand. Jones's. Jones's handiwork? More so than any other age group. Yeah. Also, like, why cats? Don't cats. Cats are great. Don't cats. <laughs> don't, don't bring cats. The slogan for today, don't cats. Cats are great. That's great. Okay, so in 1961, oh, 62 actually, Jones moved his family down to Brazil, so him and his like seven children and his wife, um, because it was apparently safe from nuclear war. So one thing about Jones, he was obsessed about, well, many people at the time were obsessed about nuclear war and the fear of being blown up and all that sort of stuff. It was a cold war. This yes. was a legitimate fear. Yeah. And, you know, considering, it's kind of like living right now. Yes. Uh, the fear yeah. of travel and the, and the terrorists and whatnot, whatever. Um, so on his way to Brazil, he made his first visit to Diana. So this is the first time he visited the, the, the place. Um, 
This would be right when my dad was born. Yes. And so while he's in Brazil, he struggles. He struggles. He studied the local economy and receptiveness of racial minorities to his message. Um, unfortunately, he struggled due to a language barrier, so he wasn't really able to reach people like he wanted to. Um, and also while he was gone, he had to return to the U.S. like a year later because his temple was struggling without him. Jones was the face of the people's temple. Without Jones, there's no people's temple. Everyone loved him. He, he was what held it together. Um, so when he came back, he moved the temple to Northern California for safety because he's like, everyone, nuclear war, we're not safe here in Indiana. We gotta go to California. That's where it is. That's where it's at. I don't know if that would really help. But, yeah, me and you. Yeah, I'm not saying what, he's, what he was preaching in terms of that made any sense, but it Yeah, it you take your own safety when it comes to nuclear warfare. Yeah. So Totally, I won't judge him there. He was like, this is in 1967, he was like, we're going to create a new socialist Eden in California, it'd be real nice. So they moved to Redwood uh, Valley, California, near Yukia. Um, so at this time, he was preaching things like, this is a quote, if you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. That's not true, by the way. <laughs> I mean, there are socialists who have also done wrong things. Like, there are racist socialists. Yes. And fascists, like, not but, like, uh, you know, like, other types of socialists who are, are not good people. Let's yeah. just, let's just remove that whole socialism removal well, thing. That's not true. It could really help. I'm not saying socialism is bad. Yeah. I'm saying I agree capitalism is bad, but. Yeah, well, at this point, Jones is kind of moving away from traditional Christianity. Um, he was concealing his apostolic socialism as social gospel in, 19, in the early 1970s. So he's like, this is Christianity, but also no socialism. Like, he was very tricky. Um, he started to reject the Bible in traditional Christianity, saying it was used to oppress POC and women, which, in it's a way, true. is not wrong. But, like, because I know his intentions were not right, it feels worse coming from him. Um, Jones also said he was the reincarnation of Gandhi, Father Divine, Jesus, Jesus uh, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. So, look, man, you're Irish and Welsh. You have none of those people within <laughs> you. You're definitely not Gandhi. You're definitely not the Buddha. Like, so many you things. Don't, you don't just, like, pick up. <laughs> and then, like, one Eastern European person? Yeah. Like, and back then, that was still considered a racialized kind of person. Yeah. Um, because of their proximity to Ava and yeah. all of that. So, like, no. I think his Sorry, idea was uh, that, like, I am all for preaching for all these races. I want to connect with them, and I want to be all of their gods, so more people will come to me. Which, unfortunately, worked, but still. It's this is like early versions of cultural appropriation, by the way. Just yeah. And this is also another quote from um, Jones, according to a former, a former temple member. Um, what Jones said was, what you need to believe in is what you see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, 
If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. So but that also means that if I see you as a man, yes, then you're just a man. Yes. Like, I mean, he's not wrong there. Like, we do interpret, like, we do give meaning to people. Like, it is kind of us who decides whether someone is good or bad. Like, yes. There is no actual, like, inherent good or bad in anyone. It's just all how people us. perceive you. But, once again, he was just trying to make everything about him. He wanted to be their everything so they had nothing else. And, quite honestly, when they were moving around, they weren't doing as bad when they did when they were to Diana, but, like, these people weren't living in luxury while uh, being in this temple. So, in 1967, Jones claimed to be uh, an atheist or agnostic in a phone combo with Joan. Joan. John Mahir, Mahir um, in 1977, uh, in the New York Times magazine, Jones' wife said, John used religion to try uh, to get some people out of an opiate of religion. So, he's going from being completely obsessed with religion as a child to kind of shutting it, but also making himself a god. Very weird. Um, he once slammed the Bible on a table and yelled, I've got to destroy this paper idol, and also said, you're going to help yourself or you'll, or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory that's in you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. Which, outside of context, not yeah, that bad. Yeah. But in context, it is terrible. Alright, so here comes the expansion. Within five years, the temple expanded to um, San Fernando, San Francisco, and L.A. So they had multiple temples by this point. Um, Jones was able to obtain good public support and connections with politicians. He was very personable. Everyone loved him. Everyone wanted to know how Jones was doing. And like, you know, they just everyone just wanted to be his friend. Um, people compared him to the likes of MLK. Uh, Angela Davis, Einstein, Chairman Mao, but this was just by the um, Governor Jerry Brown. So clearly, he was in high standing amongst uh, people who were in power at the time. Um, as, the, as the temple grew, so did media scrutiny. And because Jones didn't like people saying bad things about him, he loved the good things. He was like a plant. He flourished off the good things people said, but the scrutiny he couldn't handle. So, they picked up and they moved to Guyana and um, they named it Jonestown in 1977. Which is um, a play on Georgetown, yes. which is one of the biggest names in Guyana. Yeah. So uh, he chose Guyana because he had been there before. It was a predominantly black country, um, English speaking, so he didn't have the same language barrier that like Brazil did. And the politics seemed to be leaning, leaning more towards the left at that time. Which suited his uh, view. Um, they purchased 3,000 acres. Um, the land was basically infertile, and fresh water was seven miles away by muddy roads. So that's why it was so cheap, because it was basically unlivable. Uh, the temple, specifically Jones, took advantage of the Guyanese government. He promised $500,000 that would be invested into the Guyanese assets. Um, that did not happen. It was fake. He did not have that money. Um, he also made a mess with immigration. Uh, the Guyanese immigration, they couldn't handle that mass migration of people. It put a strain on their economy. 
and their liberation. It was too much. Because by this time, Jones had almost a thousand people. Yeah, and like around this point, a lot of people were losing life. Yeah. Um, yeah, because this was right around the time I think my father was being starting to immigrate. Um, I'm like my aunts and uncles and stuff like that. So it it was and like the political situation in Guyana is very complex. Yeah. Um, and like the racial tensions in Guyana is, is very complex um, because of colonization and the way that um, British kind of colonists kind of set up the political system there and yeah. created a racial divide between Afro-Guyanese and indo yeah, so it was just it was just enough for people leaving the country. But like all of a sudden, a thousand people entered the country. It was a lot of strain. Um, a lot of questionable things were allowed to you know slip by because Jones was once again so personable. There were things happening that most people would be like, "Hey, that's kind of weird." They're like, "Oh, it's Jones. No worry about it. He's a good fella. Don't worry about it." Um. Which is and also he's pulling this whole like pseudo Christian thing. Guyana's a very Christian country because of like colonization and the yeah. fact that like um all of the, the slaves that had been brought over and, and forced to be there, um, they were also forced to drop their religion and their full floor like any all of their yeah. culture and assimilate into Christianity in order to be perceived humans, yeah. and the same thing happened um, with Indo-Guyanese in that um, some of them were able to keep their culture, but they were treated more poorly than those who converted into Christianity. Yeah, so um, the thing with Jonestown is that not only was Jones loved, but the people, you know, they were to be really friendly, really nice, great people, and not to mention, um, Jones had what they would call public relations women. I'm doing air quotes. I can't see that. <laughs> public relations women of the temple who are often involved with higher ranking politicians, people in power, you know, being friendly, friendly, you know, flirtatious, you know, a little hand on the shoulder, you know, a nice smile, a little wink, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, Town was severely overpopulated. By 1978, there were just too many, too much people and not enough land on the resources. It was a very short-lived paradise from maybe the beginning. It was all right, but everything felt a bit really, really quickly. Um, they went from having movie nights that were eventually canceled for Soviet propaganda that he would play over like a speaker or like a movie. Like, so he would be like, we're going to play this movie. And then when they all showed up, he'd be like, JK, we're going to watch the Soviet propaganda. Yes. Yeah. So wait, he's still trying to pull this socialist stuff when he's also like, but I'm also trying to pocket any profits? Yes. Yeah, it, do- it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, I guess it's like the Soviet version of communism, so, yeah. like, similar. What was supposed to be a paradise, and it just completely collapsed. Um, they Their school study and lectures became Jones preaching and crying about enemies and revolution for hours and hours at night, um, so they weren't really Saying much education. I don't know what the education system was like, but to me, it was a downgrade from from there. Um, the temple members worked six days a week, 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. with a one-hour lunch. Um, but when Jones's health deteriorated, his wife took over and she changed the hours to five days a week 
eight-hour days, and then eight hours of study in socialism after work. Um, wait, wait, wait. So they do their eight-hour <laughs> shift, and then they gotta go fucking study for eight hours, and then, yeah. I was all like, oh, this lady seems nice. Yes, no. No, she's a I big supporter like, of her like, husband. I was clearly this lady, but no. No, she's no. a she believed full That made it worse. They went from 12-hour days to 16-hour days. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't take anything about that, because it just sucks. Um, these tactics were inspired by North Korea and China, the dictatorship, and all that stuff that's going on. It was the mind control and, and behavior modification, and that's how they sort of achieved that. So, Jones's health continued to spiral. Uh, he started turning on members that didn't agree with him or find things inch, as interesting as him or understand the message of the videos that he was showing or the things that he was preaching. Because my, like, think about this. You see this man and he's preaching Christianity, he's like God, all this sort of stuff. And then over the course of not very long at all, maybe five years, six years, suddenly there's this big shift into Soviet socialism and like dictatorship and all that sort of stuff. You begin to lose. Which is confusing because technically socialism and dictatorship are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, But there's a very interesting thing that powerful people did with communism, which was they were like, everybody shares the wealth except for us up top. We're going to take most of it. Yeah. um, And live on that. And then you all share what's left. Exactly. Um, So Due to the lack of fertile, fertile, fertile land, um, they survived off imported goods. Um, and they lived in small, you know, houses with little shacks. Um, they mainly ate rice, beans, egg, greens, rarely any meat because it was obviously expensive and hard to import, especially at that time. Um, some sauce and eggs. In 1978, there was an outbreak in half the community. They got severe diarrhea because, you know, a lot of these foods were canned. They weren't fresh goods. You know, it bounced and messed with your system. And let's not forget, like, the 70s weren't that great for food health and safety. No, no, they weren't. They weren't. Um, there was no jail in Jonestown, but there was punishment. One of the punishments included being put in a 6 by 4 by 3 feet box overnight as punishment. Um, they would put kids at the bottom of wells at night. What? Sometimes upside down. What? Yes. Um, children. This is children. Yes. This was their, this was the only way that they had to punish people. There were very rarely beatings, but they did happen. Um, sometimes people were drugged when they attempted to escape. Um, there were armed guards patrolling Jonestown. And one of the ways that Jones had actually been allowed into the country is because the import of guns and weaponry. He wouldn't have been the guy in the government was obviously not to the people's benefit. And everyone had to call Joe's dad or father. Children were under communal care. They could not see their parents during the day, only at night. And that was rarely. I don't understand why that's okay. It's because he wanted to be the one and only dad. That, yeah, so this was a lot of grooming. This yeah. was a lot of manipulation. Yeah. Um, this was more organized manipulation. Manson, there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of, um, you know, he he didn't really try and like create systems to to make, you know, he just 
who yeah. preyed on who was vulnerable and who was below them. John was very calculated and he he understood what he was doing. He knew what kind of effect he was having on these people and for people to follow him. Because either they wholeheartedly believed in what he was preaching or because they could not leave. They couldn't. Um, so to give you guys a breakdown for the demographic of Jonestown, it was 70% black, um, 45% of them were black women, 23% black male, and then the remaining percentage were um, white and then other. So the majority of them were black people, a lot of them African American, and obviously Guyanese people. There wouldn't be a lot of Indo-Guyanese no. people within this because there was that racial tension yes. there, and like there is a ton of racism between Indo, Caribbean, and Afro. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Leo Ryan, who represented the 11th Congressional uh, District of California, and some other people went to investigate Jonestown. But prior to um, them moving to Guyana, uh, Leo Ryan had a friend in Jonestown, Jones, in the People's Temple, who had um, been found mutilated and murdered uh, prior to their leave. I don't know if those two things are related. But it definitely, you know, with the, all people saying things about Jones. So they left not too long after. The yes, murder. exactly. So, yeah, that's a red flag right there. Yeah. And as you can tell from cults, yeah. you know, murder is not that difficult to no. order once you've got the ball. So Leo Ryan was like, my friend's dead. You know, people have been saying some things about Jonestown. There's some good stuff. There's the best stuff to get out. You know, people, most people are from California. Um, he was initially denied access to his people. They were not allowed at all. Um, eventually, after a couple of days, uh, Leo and four of his party members were eventually allowed into Jonestown. Um, people of Jonestown put on, or not the people, mainly Jones, put on a faux reception for Leo and his members. Um, there's an audio tape that was discovered much later on of Jones rehearsing how he would convince Leo Everyone was happy in Jonestown. That was a great not place. I've heard this recording. Yeah, they, they find it a lot more. He was practicing. It's not a very long clip. So you can already tell that Jones kind of knew that Jonestown was not the heaven he promised. Even he couldn't be that delusional. That things were that great and the people were that happy. It seems to be a big thing with cult leaders is yeah. that they don't believe what they're preaching. They they know, they know what their treatment isn't correct. Yeah. And um, so after this rehearsal, or after, after this reception, several people, at least 11, had secretly communicated to Leo the truth about Jonestown and asked for his help out. In fact, two people that night, the first night, had written a note secret to him saying, like, this get shit is loud. Out. Get me out. And um, so... After a couple of days of negotiation, Jones let them go, but said they were spewing lies. Um, Ryan stayed back to see if there were any more defectors. Unfortunately, many of the, the, the defectors were shot on planes um, when they were coming to leave. Some on trucks, even Ryan was threatened with a knife. He eventually died. He never went to meet Diana. Um, yeah. So, and also some of the people he brought with him, some of the delegation, were left behind on the Air slept with her Mac um, injured. Wow. Yeah. So when I say they could not leave Jonestown, they could not, even people who weren't part of Jonestown, 
Like, but once you stepped into Joan's feelings, you couldn't. Yeah. You, like, once you've seen the conditions, you weren't allowed yeah. to, to get out and be like, no, 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 it's not that great, actually. And the funny thing is that Leah Ryan, she was going to write a mostly positive review of Jonestown, but... Wait, after he saw people being... Well, like, he was, ah. like, only 14 people... Oh, out of, like, a thousand. Out of people were like, I want to leave. And so he was like, well, then most people see what they want to say. 900 people who, people who were like, no, this place is great. like, do you want to leave? They're like, no, I want to stay. Why would I want to leave? And so he's like, but Jones wasn't happy with that. He was like, a mostly positive review? That's not good enough. Yeah, well, that's the thing about manipulation. You don't want anybody to think anything is yeah. wrong with your manipulation or else you're going to be found out. Yes. So, um, Joan said he knew the plane, the fucker who to be on, was going to be shot up. But he said he didn't plan it. And I quote, uh, one of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot and down comes the plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachuting here on us. Oh, I I remember this quote. Yes. I, yeah. Yes. So, Jones is, as I mentioned before, not in a, granted, I don't think he's ever in a very, very good mental state, but he's deteriorated even more so, and he's extremely paranoid by this point. Yeah. Like, if you think of yourself as God, yeah. um, and then you start seeing that start to crumble away from you, and you're, you're given that kind of mortal status back, yes. that's really going to... Yeah, it, it really messed him up. And so here is the mass suicide. Um, so Jones had prefaced this, um, I hate to call it a mass suicide because not everyone, uh, not everyone wanted to die. There were people who did, but there are a lot, also a lot of people who did not. Um, but he said, you can go down in history saying you chose your own way to go, and it is your commitment to refuse capitalism and support of socialism, he said on tape to remember it's a mass suicide. Rep- he called it revolutionary suicide. Um, so after they had confirmed that Leo Ryan was dead, um, some of the temple temple's uh, members praised Jones on his on his idea for mass suicide. They're like, "Good job, buddy! This is the best thing we've ever had. We should all go because clearly Earth is not for us. This life is not for us." Um, Though Jones didn't want the praise, he was reaching the point where he's like, I just gotta make this happen. Like, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to be told I'm great. I'm a god. I just want everyone and myself to die. That's all we wanted by this point. Okay, so the first of the victims, this is in 1978. Um, so he had all the people meet in a building. He had a bathtub set up with the poison that they were going to administer to commit this revolutionary suicide. Um, according to Odell Rhodes, a former member who escaped, um, Lita Paul's one-year-old was the first victim of the poison. Oh, no, yeah. it's the babies. Leave um, the babies alone. They're not making a choice. No, it was... Because you can't say, oh, you can say it was your choice. It's not a baby's choice. No. It's a baby literally so at one year old. make words. Um, it was delivered via a syringe a needle that was squirted the poison into the infant's mouth. 
and then they split, and then Coletta was followed suit after that. Um, and for those who haven't heard the tape, both Mari and I have heard, it's a 44 minute long tape. Because there are a lot of people. Um, and he but, spends most of the time with preaching at them, telling yes. them why they're doing this. Yes. Um, and I, is, is that when he says the playing quote? He says the playing quote just before that. But he does continue to preach to people. Um, people were coming to the tab of poison, and a lot of them were even approached by Jones himself and encouraged to take poison. Um, but as time went on, more people were reluctant to take poison. Less, more, less people wanted to die. The reluctance to die, as Jones would say. Well, they're watching everybody else die around them. That's what they did Well, yeah, it took five minutes or less for the poison to settle in and kill people. Um, Unfortunately, some people thought this was, was another white knight rehearsal, and what, what a white knight rehearsal was sort of like in prep for all of them to go. Some people didn't realize it was the real deal. They thought, oh, this is just like another drill, you know, but it was their last moment, and they didn't even know it. And so they were guided outside to die, and one by one, they were put out for the bathtub, and they were, so on. Um... Some survivors say it was uh, calm during the moment, but on tapes you can hear the cries and screams of children, and I can second that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can definitely hear children are upset. You can even hear, from what I recall, some parents were like, I will take the poison, but not my kids. Like, this is my choice. I will go, but not my children. And I am not a parent, so I, I don't know what it feels like to have a kid, but... I can understand being like, this is my choice, but, like, my children are too young. They haven't been in this world long enough. I, it's not my right to make it. And also because, like, once you don't have your kids, why else is there any meaning to live? And that's why Jones had them sacrifice, and not sacrifice, kill, or I guess kill, it would be burn their children first, because... It gives them less incentive to be alive. Yeah, once you've done that to your kid, there's, there's no way to live with yourself. Yes. Well, I mean, there is, but it involves being a horrible thing. Well, when you're in a town with um, armed guards where you're not allowed to leave, and then you're told you have to kill your kid, and then you do, then you probably can't see any other reason to live, especially when everyone else is dying anyway. That's the end goal not like even if you did manage to escape, you're still living with that memory of your children dying. And it yes. being partially your fault. And there was um one man, one man who had walked in to the ceremony too late, he had just come in when he saw his wife had just taken the life of their child and she just initially poisoned her herself and he couldn't do anything about it. And he said that. He came he meant to get out. And yeah. it was that Someone had to drag him out because he was escaping with other people. Someone had to drag him out because he just saw his wife and child die. He probably he might have stayed behind if that was the case, but somehow someone had to drag him out. Yeah, but yeah, I definitely could see that be like, you know what? Like I was trying to save y'all, but then yeah, I I couldn't make it. Um, so Jones died by gunshot to the head. It was most people say it was self-inflicted, but there are some reports that say it was like his his nurse who did it. But either way. He never answered for his crime because suicide. Um, this was the largest mass incident prior to 9 11. This was like in the 1970s. So, mm-hmm. like, 
900 people died. Um, and this, and because of news reports that came out later on, this is where the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid came from, because, um, Jones used that flavor aid. It's not Kool-Aid, but flavor aid. Um, poison, but it's called drinking the Kool-Aid anyway. I guess. It's branded better? I don't know. Yeah. And this is where that whole, like, Jonestown, I think, might have been the first mass murder. Um, no, mass murder. Mass suicide. Yes. Um, in a because yeah. there were a few uh, oh, that did happen. Um, I was actually thinking about doing Heaven's Gate, which is another one. That was in America, right? Yeah, that was in America. Uh, well, it happened all, like, it was one of those cults that had reached across the globe. And so there were factions all over the globe. Um, but yeah, very similar events where, where everybody was creating the poison together. Um, but that happened, I believe, followed. Um, so one of the survivors was, uh, actually hearing impaired. So they missed the announcement for this, this, um, this revolutionary suicide altogether. They completely missed the loudspeaker. They, what happened was they had walked in and they had seen all these dead bodies on the ground and they played dead until everyone was dead. Because if you weren't dead, you would be shot. Hey, look at that. A disability helped someone survive. I'm just saying. Another person had uh, slept through it completely, like an elderly woman. She, that would be me. Slept through it, missed it. Um, slept through this. <laughs> <laughs> and then another hit under their bed. What was happening? Um, so Jones is survived by three of his children, all the boys. Um, Jim Jr., Tim, and Steven, who were actually away at um, a basketball game facing Georgetown versus, like, another guy in basketball game. So, they came home to, to yes. Wow. So I didn't know about that, though. Yeah. So, all their siblings, their mom, their dad, you all their friends, family. coming home and finding out your dad orchestrated a mass suicide, killed himself, the rest of your family, and, and just apparently forgot about you and your basketball game. Like, if you thought it was bad when your dad missed the game before, yeah. like, at least he didn't murder, murder a ton of people, including your family. And, like, um, I believe uh, the one black son, I was about the Jones, uh, he, if I remember correctly, he mentioned that, like, as he got older, you could see, like, the like he was, Gerald was a good dad for a while, but as he began to deteriorate, he could tell something was going to happen. He could see it going that way. But I mean, like, what can you do when you're yeah. like a teen? Like, yeah, like when you're, like, even, even when your dad's not a cult leader. Yeah. Like, it's very difficult to change your kids. It's very difficult to, to stop them from doing anything. Like, yeah. Your parents are their own people. I just, I just can't imagine growing up like that and then having to just keep going with your life. Yeah. After everyone who was participating in that lifestyle has yeah. been so long. It's a, you know, for those who managed to survive, whether they slept through it or some managed to escape past the armed guards, or even a few of the armed guards who were supposed to take their lives, who just turned tail and ran, because once they saw what was happening, 
you know, when you're faced with death and you don't want to go and there's no one there to stop you, you're going to run. It's sad to me because he perfected the arts of manipulation and a mass hostage situation and all those people are gone because of this one white man who could have done good things, could have done great things for people he was trying to protect protect and liberate and do all that stuff. Here's why a lot of racialized people are very justified in being very wary of white people who claim to want to help them. Because a lot of the times while, you know, a lot of their ideas can be, you know, very helpful and productive, yeah. sometimes the reasoning, the justification, the rationalization, and even the intended outcome is not coming from a good place. It's coming from a very selfish place. Yeah. It, it, it really is sad. And to hear about learning about the case, hearing about the case, listening to or watching videos and interviews with survivors and like sort of how they tried to pick up their lives, you know, after that, how can you go on from that? A lot of people. And especially those children did not deserve it. Babies, children. They didn't, they didn't ask to be part of that cult, or that religion, or whatever you want to call it. They are just dragged into it because they're parents. I understand I will really choose about this idea of like another Christian church in Guyana because, like, I know, like, at least with my family, when it came to the Caribbean, they were taught that their, like, being was backwards, yeah. you know, civilized, it was all of these messed up things, um, and that they, you know, were also, like, harassed and beaten and, like, assaulted and stuff. Yeah. Like, they faced violence for not converting. And, like, um, enslaved people didn't even have a choice. There was, there was no option. And have somebody come in and be like, no, 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 I've got a Christianity that'll work for you. It, it just, like, makes me so upset. It's just so funny. Like, he, he took advantage of people. He did. I'm not going to assume that you guys know, but a lot of people of color, especially black people, are religious, usually a Christian faith. And, like, he knew what he was doing. He knew that this was, like, a way to get to these people. Because the white people, not all of them were there for it. And conversion, like, the conversion process was very violent. It was very, very violent. So, of course, they would be like, it, they want to get involved in any kind of Christianity that didn't start off violence. It would be a very different experience. And he was like, he was just someone they could look up to. When you've been oppressed for so long, especially in the 60s and the 50s, where a lot of people didn't have the rights they have today, and you have like a person in power, this privileged race, vouching for you, Someone who has your back and speaking for you and achieving things, it's like, well, I'm going to follow this person to the end of the earth. And I know tons of people in Guyana, Caribbean in general, who do tend to be very protective of white folks because they were brought up to believe that these people are smarter, more civilized, yeah. more educated, more, you know, white savior. You know, and they're taught to believe that it is going to be a white person who will come and save them from their, their life of strife or whatever. Like, 
it it it's very manipulative and yeah. terrible thing to do. Like it's sad. It's sad, but it, it, there's one thing that these both these stories have personal stories these kids have in common is that the power of one person and their manipulation over marginalized people, whether it be women or people of color or whatever, is the outcome has ended in tragedy. I didn't even realize that we did that. I picked someone who took advantage of women and, you know, especially women who are vulnerable to sexual assault. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of thing. And you're a cult leader to advantage of racialized and mostly black people. Yeah. Also, like, I'd like to add, <laughs> this all just occurred to me when he was younger. He was just like, uh, screw those, like, those North Koreans and the dictatorship. And the and, like, he was very anti the Korean War. And then, so with the Guyana, he's suddenly using, like, her, like, North Korean, like, like, propaganda. propaganda like, like, manipulation and, like, mind control tactics to manipulate his people. So he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how, like, he, he knew how much, like, how much damage that these, his, these, these tactics could use, and he did it. And it's sad, because, like, he had, Three Korean children. He had a black child. He had a mixed race child. I don't think, like, in terms of his immediate family, he could see the damage he was doing. But, like, outside of that, I don't think he cared how it affected people outside of his. Does that that make sense? Yeah, like. Well, it doesn't affect these people because they're in my immediate family circle, but people outside of that, it's just like, whatever. It's just collateral damage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm bummed out. Yeah. (laughs) But usually we don't go into some. So in depth on these cases, yeah. and so we don't really talk about like we we haven't been spending as much time talking about individual cases, and so it's easier to be like, okay, that's the end of the story, let's yeah. move on. But with this, it's like it's it's exhausting yeah. and it's it's heartbreaking and like like prior and during to and after this podcast, you know, we've been talking about it, you know, so it's a lot of analyzing and like. Sometimes when you talk to somebody, you realize that you didn't know you always get it by yourself. A lot of that, so it just like, adds more weight onto the situation. And also, like, doing cases like this requires a ton more research because you're also going to find really problematic articles and, and, you know, really, like, when speaking to Charles and Nancy, like, there yeah. was a lot of stuff that was very problematic when it came to certain things. Yeah. You know, like, people are so racist, like, a lot of them, like, a lot of early articles really played up the health itself a bit and made it seem like Manson was, you know, that's what he believed, and, you know, like, they, you know, they make it seem like he was for black people. Yeah. Like, when they talk, they said he was on the black Panther side. Yeah. But it was, he wasn't. And when you, you research more into it, because, like, it doesn't make sense. When you first look at it, you're like, what? how, that doesn't make sense, but how would you for black people if he wants to, like, and, like, it's just, like, really awful garbage. And they, and only a few articles will mention how misogynistic and racist Manson was. Like, not many. Like, there was that one video that I saw, I think it was on biography.com, yeah. of the, like, like, someone, someone, like, he was researching it was like, oh, look, we, there was no signs when there was all of the signs. 
there are so many signs. Both Manson and uh, Jones, very young ages, showed signs that they that they were not your average child. They clearly had some extra skills or ideas that people that took their age were not not getting involved in. I think how I want to end this is I also want to talk about how not all cults are violent and evil. Ah, yes. Um, like I have been watching, I've only started, I'm only on episode three of Wild Wild Country, um, which is about the, um, which is about a cult that moved into another southern town. Um, it was a, it was a cult that was very based on um, like Hinduism and a bunch of like other things. Um, it preached a lot of like free love, the open marriages, um, that kind of thing. But it didn't involve the same kind of sexual abuse that you hear about in a lot of other cults um, from that time, like from Manson and Jones's time. Like there was a lot of cults that were very kind of based on that free love thing. But once again, it was women being passed around, being forced into yeah. these. Um, and I've watched so many documentaries on, on completely different cults that all kind of follow the same kind of pattern. But not all of them go that way. And there's a lot of people who, who believe in things that are strange and, and different. And, you know, like that definition, you know, I said, uh, I mentioned before that definition yeah. that it's just perceived as strange and unusual. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. Like, a lot of the things that are normal now, like the idea of polyamory, yes. of, of open marriages, of non-monogamy, mm. of um, socialism and communal living, a lot of these ideas are becoming more popular now. Yes. However, back then, it was viewed very, very negatively. There was a lot of um, emphasis on, like, like, the occult. Being sex praised and sex famous. And that's not true. Yeah. And so we don't want to paint all cults in one light. Yeah. Um, there's something very problematic about having um, a leader who is in control of people's lives and yes. livelihoods. Um, but like in Wild, Wild Country, like I could be wrong, maybe I, I get to the end and you find out some really messed up shit, but from what I've seen so far, a lot of it was like, we don't really have rules that just respect each other. And, you know, a lot of in the surrounding towns thought that these people were evil yeah. and that they were, you know, ruining family values and, you know, um, but that's not necessarily the case. I think, I will say this, my opinion on cults is kind of the same way I view religion. I don't necessarily have a problem with religion. I have a problem with how people use religion and, like, for example, if you're a Christian and you still believe in gay or LGBT, LGBTQ rights and you don't believe that women should stay pure for their husbands and all the other BS, I don't have a problem with you being a Christian. But I do have a problem with someone saying, God says gay should burn in hell. And that's when I have a problem with religion. Same thing with cult. If you're a cult that where you respect people whose rights aren't being stepped on or ignored, then Go ahead, Paul Fucci. Like, but the people who took advantage of that and abused that and use it to harm other people, 
that's the issue. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> Alright, I think that's where we will leave it off. So, don't be a murderer. Yes. Also, don't be a cult leader. Yeah, don't start any cults. See you guys later. Bye!